Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, August 23rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Netflix is leaning into the clickbait game that soured online journalism 10 years ago. Could this strategy affect the film industry overall, and has it been played before? Plus, how community members in Marseille took over a McDonald's and turned it into a mutual aid center. And Facebook has released another transparency report, and it doesn't make them look any better. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Have you noticed that movies on your Netflix homepage are getting a bit more misleading? And I can't tell you how many thumbnails I've clicked on thinking that they're going to be like a gritty docu-series, one of my favorite genres, only to find out it's a half-baked fictional TV show with a totally different tone than I expected. Apparently, I'm not alone. According to journalist Dan Coyce, the same guy who wrote the big piece recently about how he might have been responsible for the segue being such a flop, according to Dan Coyce, Netflix has joined the clickbait party 10 years late. Coys points to examples like movies with question titles like Why Did You Kill Me? and Who Killed Sarah? and similarly What Lies Below? as well as the sultry thumbnails for each of those featuring scantily clad actors to lure viewers in. Or there's the nice Norwegian TV show about Norse mythology whose title Ragnarok and a thumbnail of Thor's electrified hammer is sure to confuse some non-Norwegian folks looking for the Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Though for me, the thumbnail for that Ragnarok show was actually of two people in the midst of a street fight, I think, it was kind of hard to tell. And the fact that I saw a different thumbnail than Coist did is another strategy from Netflix which they first implemented in 2017. Multiple thumbnails for every single title which swap out based on a user's watch history. It's why, as Coist explains, quote, if you watch a lot of romance, the company might serve you a thumbnail for Goodwill Hunting that features Matt Damon and Minnie Driver smooching. If you love comedy, your Goodwill Hunting thumbnail might feature Robin Williams. More questionably, as outlets such as Wired have reported, if you're black, you're going to end up seeing black performers in your thumbnails, even if they're relatively minor characters in the movie or show. I see Liam Neeson in my Love Actually thumbnail, others might see Chiwetel Ejiofor, end quote. 
For the record, a lot of my thumbnails seem to be minimalistic designs without people in them, so whatever that says about my cold, dead heart. But Coyce argues that this strategy is now going beyond the personalized, targeted thumbnails and is affecting the titles, the choices of the movies that get made, and more, all in ways reminiscent of how the landscape of online journalism changed with the initial success of clickbait over ten years ago. Quote, Netflix has always been devoted to getting users to click on a show and fast. The network's own research shows that users consider each title for a whopping 1.8 seconds, and that if users don't find anything in a minute and a half, they're gone. The service's homepage and the shows the network acquires has long been ruthlessly optimized to appeal to very specific audiences. When new content springs up on your Netflix homepage, it's often brazenly similar but not quite related to content you've enjoyed before. Following the success of the comically generically titled Money Heist, Netflix recently debuted the new, even more generically titled hit Heist. One thumbnail featuring, just to leave no stone unturned, a woman wearing only her underwear and a cascade of $20 bills. End quote. And Coyce continues later on, hitting on his comparisons to online journalism, quote, As long as there have been movies, there have been marketers scheming to get people to watch them. But this spring and summer, things have looked a little different over at Netflix. The company seems more brazen in its strategies, more willing to promise something and then absolutely fail to deliver, often using headline tricks familiar from the social web. That's what clickbait is, luring someone into clicking and then delivering something other than what the headline made them want. You ask a question, but you don't answer it. You promise satisfaction, but you leave the user unsatisfied. Living through the past decade in online news has made me a little suspicious of this particular kind of all-hat and no-cattle marketing. Take those titles in the form of questions, for example. In their bluntness, they beg an answer, and call to mind the Curiosity Gap headlines that took over the media in the mid-2010s as every website tried to replicate the success of Upworthy. Someone killed Sarah, you'll never believe who it was. Similarly, the blandly sexy thumbnail images are reminiscent of the most basic of chum boxes, those occasionally disturbing programmatic ads that take over the bottom of websites that need to scrape a little more revenue from their online real estate, end quote. Misleading thumbnails are one thing, they're kind of annoying, yeah, but acquired films or Netflix originals with titles like Who Killed Sarah or Heist that are meant to appeal to the broadest common denominator, that's where I start wondering what effect this could have on the film industry writ large, and will it affect marketing to the point of changing what gets made to begin with? You know, we're at a turning point at the moment when it comes to film anyways, thanks to the growth of streaming platforms intersecting with the pandemic-fueled closure of movie theaters. And I wonder how one industry giant's strategies or policies can have an outsized influence on film overall. It reminds me of a thread that got spread around on Twitter over the weekend about how Blockbuster's refusal to stock NC-17 or even certain R films effectively killed that sector of movies. The thread received some pushback because it read as a bit of a critique of people who wax nostalgic about Blockbuster, and many people were quick to point out that being nostalgic for Blockbuster isn't being nostalgic for a problematic corporation, but rather nostalgic for the act of going to a video store to rent a movie, and that for so many people, Blockbuster was the only place in driving distance to do that. Now, in my opinion, those comments were kind of the exact same point that the original poster, writer, and filmmaker Chris Funderburg was trying to make, 
Blockbuster became the only venue through which tons of people were able to watch any movies. So if Blockbuster decided certain films didn't adhere to their guidelines, then those tons of people never got to see movies like that, and those movies didn't get to make the money they might have otherwise. Quoting Funderburg on Twitter, Knowing that Blockbuster wouldn't stock films they deemed inappropriate for their family image obviously affected how the studios approached filmmaking and what they would fund. Combine this with the MPAA's well-documented history of racism, homophobia, and general incoherency, and it adds up to, on the part of distributors and producers, a conscious and deliberate suppression of voices, perspectives, and ideas, especially towards outsider and minority filmmakers. It was a fight, a real fight, to get something as straightforward as showgirls into the largest rental chain in the country, and then only in an edited version. Difficult, adult, and hard-edged films simply disappeared from the popular cultural landscape. It became work to find them." End quote. He also points out that Blockbuster had a policy of limiting the number of classic and foreign films they kept in stock, which further homogenized the movies people were watching. And this is something I kind of see happening with streaming services these days. You know, They want you to watch their originals, of course, because they put a ton of money into them, or the brand new movies because they paid a ton of money to license those. But all the classics that they also own, they rarely show up on people's homepages, unless, of course, you watch so many of them that the algorithm has learned. And in that case, I don't know, you might instead end up with thumbnails for Netflix's new originals that look as close to the film posters for the eras of movies your watch history indicates you see to enjoy. And to be sure, it's way better that a much wider variety of diverse films are accessible across streaming platforms, since the point is that they literally weren't accessible when Blockbuster was the only source for movies in town. But to Quiz's point in Slate, those different films or those older classics or whatever art house or B-movies that aren't what Netflix most immediately wants you to watch are rarely getting seen. You often have to hunt for them. And here's a current example of an upcoming movie on Netflix that's taking the clickbait strategy to a whole new level. There's a new Bob Ross documentary coming out this Wednesday, the 25th. You might have seen the trailer. It's the official full-length trailer, but feels more like a spooky teaser. Only 20 seconds long and featuring nothing more than a single black-and-white photograph of Bob Ross. It eerily teases a story that it can't tell you unless you watch the whole movie. And that mystery got a lot of Bob Ross fans worried that the Netflix documentary was going to somehow ruin Bob Ross's good name and memory. But apparently, according to Vanity Fair, who's watched the film, the reason for the stripped-down trailer was a legal one. Netflix is allowed to use clips from Bob Ross's show The Joy of Painting under fair use law in the film itself, but not for advertising purposes. And that little legal ripple is basically exactly what the documentary is about, too. All of the disagreements among Bob Ross's estate and his family, all of whom want to represent Ross's memory as accurately as possible, but who disagree on what that means. While the movie's title, Unhappy Little Trees, The Dark Legacy of Bob Ross, certainly makes it seem like this is some kind of true crime expose, the documentary's director, Joshua Raffae, alleges that while it touches on the volatile disagreements among Ross's family and estate, viewers will actually leave the movie loving Bob Ross even more. Now, the trailer was a clever way to avoid legal trouble and illustrate the plot of the movie at the same time, but it also makes the movie come off as way more salacious and controversial than it really is, at least according to Vanity Fair's review. 
Yeah, I tend to like a lot of Netflix originals personally, but if too many of them or their acquired properties become overhyped in misleading ways and turn out to be disappointments, it might start shattering my trust there. Overall, though, it's just interesting to see what clickbait means in a world more machine learning run than it was 10 years ago, and a world where multi-million dollar budget films are not just available whenever, wherever we want them, but also, therefore, getting the same treatment as the listicles spouting the top 10 behind-the-scenes secrets you won't believe from the film itself. It's been repainted on all sides with splotches of cobalt blue, pale pink, and pastel purple. The familiar double-sloped mansard roof and iconic golden arches all that remains of its former occupant. New white letters have been installed before the yellow M reading La Pre, the E made with an upside-down A as if they ran out of letters on a letterboard. La Pre M, or the After M. This is the site of a food bank and mutual aid center seized by the people of Marseille, France, after the McDonald's it used to house was sold by its franchise owner in 2018. Or at least he tried to sell it. According to a profile by Gal Dem, the McDonald's franchise used to be the second biggest employer in the deprived northern neighborhoods of Marseille, a much-needed employer for many and a community hub for others. Workers and community members alike fought the sale for a long time. With the manager of the store, Kamel Gumari, even locking himself inside at one point, covering himself in gasoline, and threatening to light himself on fire. He and the other workers successfully stopped the franchise from being sold, but when they couldn't find a new franchisee to run the restaurant, the courts ruled that it had to be put into compulsory liquidation, according to Forbes. The former workers managed to take over the empty space, but McDonald's has not legally allowed them to do so, so technically this squadron of community volunteers are squatters. They're doing what they can to show they mean no ill will, however, all of McDonald's machines in the kitchens have been saran-wrapped to show that the volunteers won't use or damage them. Every other facet of the restaurant building and property have been transformed according to need, however. Menu boards are covered with lists of household beneficiaries and ideas for the organization's future. Countertops are surrounded by trolleys packed full with groceries. Sections of the dining area are devoted to a children's library and a computer room. Even the grassy medians in the parking lot have been turned into vegetable gardens. The San Bartolome neighborhood of Marseille, like many communities around the world, found the pandemic a rough blow that only exacerbated long-standing challenges. And like many communities, their local government wasn't doing enough to support them, so they joined together to help one another out. Quoting Gaudem, Known as the secret capital city of France, Marseille is home to one of the largest immigrant communities in the country. Most are from North African nations like Morocco and Algeria and of Muslim heritage. But hasty construction of public buildings in North Marseille, meant to house a growing migrant population, has seen the city divided into two. Now the cut-off and deprived northern side of Marseille answers to the well-off southern half, end quote. And as La M beneficiary turned volunteer Urada tells Galdem, quote, here people People weren't scared to die of COVID, they were scared to die of hunger. A lot of us, including me, lost our jobs, and this neighborhood is barely connected to the city center. There's only one bus line that goes through the whole northern side. Meanwhile, the southern side has metro lines, tramway lines, bus lines, even shuffle boats." End quote. 
And so, quoting again from Galdem, in March 2020, the group of former McDonald's workers requisitioned the building and invited a local association to use the kitchens to cook meals for homeless people. After a few months, what started as a small venture turned into a partnership, with 47 local associations serving a line of people from all walks of life that circled the whole site. A year later, now the food bank sees around a thousand people arrive weekly to pick up parcels of free food, including items like fresh vegetables, dry foods, halal meats, and cooking essentials, end quote. Like many mutual aid sites, beneficiaries say part of the appeal was the lack of red tape, not having to fill out a bunch of forms that determine exactly what your need level is, which often doesn't match your reality. There's also a deeper level of understanding, and often dignity, in a place like La Praie M, which is run by locals for locals, with many of the volunteers receiving aid themselves. As time has gone on, La Praie M has worked out the kinks and gotten more organized. Soon, it will finally be official, if all goes well. Quoting once more, On July 9th, the city voted in favor of the mayor's plan to buy the building. Once the buyout happens, La Praie M will become a social corporation owned by whoever wants to buy a share for 25 euros. It'll be owned by the people. The next step is to turn this place into a social restaurant, Gumari explains. A social fast food center that will serve locally sourced burgers sold for a little compensation or free depending on the revenue. End quote. It's been a long journey, a long fight, to get the building back to what the neighborhood once loved so much about it. A place for the community to join together that didn't cost too much, and maybe even a place to earn a living yourself. And now, it's finally getting back to that, but this time, on the neighborhood's own terms. So one quick update before I go. So on Thursday, I shared Facebook's first ever content transparency report, which listed all the top viewed domains, posts, and links on U.S. Facebook for their second quarter. And in particular, I was amused and kind of appalled by the top external link being a weird Green Bay Packers alumni page. Listen to last Thursday's episode if you want the full story there. And as I kind of hinted in that segment, Facebook got a lot of criticism for this report, for all kinds of reasons, but mostly that it still didn't tell the whole story. In particular, the New York Times reported this weekend that there was a first quarter report put together by Facebook, but it made the platform look pretty bad, so they scrapped it. Among other findings, that Q1 report showed that the most viewed link on the platform for that time period was a news article implying that the COVID vaccine had caused the death of a doctor in Florida. Yikes. And by the way, that didn't actually happen. So, you know, not great. And in response to the New York Times' reporting, Facebook has gone ahead and released that report anyways. I haven't dug through it all yet, but yeah, it's unfortunately a little bit closer to what people may have expected to see from the Q2 report. I mean, it's not all bad, but definitely a bit more damning than the Q2 report. Links are in the show notes if you want to check it out. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.